Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. Um, today is part two of Life with Breast Cancer, updates from the 42nd Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, or SABCS. And today's program is titled Updates on the Treatment of Estrogen Receptor, or ER-Positive, progesterone receptor, or PR-positive, and HER2-positive breast cancer from the, some, from the symposium. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as many other breast cancer organizations as well. And it's really because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have over 400 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, so urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Iraq, Lithuania, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. Now today's program is supported by Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, Seattle Genetics, a grant from Genentech, and an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Edith Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is Clinical Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology, Department of Medical Oncology, Director, Center to Eliminate Cancer Disparities, Associate Director, Diversity Affairs, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson, and the 116th President, National Medical Association. And, and Dr. Mitchell is going to be presenting to you the purpose of the SABCS Symposium and updates on ER-positive and PR-positive breast cancer from SABCS, including metastatic, estrogen receptor-positive, and progesterone receptor-positive breast metastatic breast cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you for the invitation to uh, participate in this panel today uh, and such a distinguished panel. It's my pleasure to um, work with this group. And thanks to the participants who are on the phone listening to us, uh, this is indeed a pleasure. Uh, I was um, honored to speak at the very first uh, annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium and the 2019 program in December was the 42nd Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Uh, it is the premier conference in the United States and the world. It is designed to provide the latest on the experimental um, research on the histology, etiology, pre prevention, diagnosis, and therapy of breast cancer, but also uh, for prevention of cancer and pre-malignant uh, breast disease to um, a number of different individuals, including health professionals, physicians, and researchers. In this meeting, the target audience for this medical event is directed primarily 
towards academic and private uh, healthcare physicians uh, treating patients with breast cancer and the researchers involved in breast cancer in medical, surgical, gynecologic, and radiation oncology, as well as primary care physicians and other appropriate healthcare professionals, nurses, um, uh, pharmacists, and others involved in the care of patients. The aim of this meeting uh, was to understand the latest strategies in breast cancer pathology, radiation, and surgery, and to implement approaches that maximize the patient's standard of care and improvement in the standard of care in breast cancer. Um, There were approximately 7,500 attendees from across the world um, who attended this event, and there was also a collaboration with other organizations such as the American Association of Cancer Research uh, and others. It was indeed a tremendous meeting uh, that included experts in clinical and basic research, um, poster presentations, slide presentations, forums, and case discussion. Uh, The official language of the symposium is English, and simultaneous simultaneous, uh, translation to other languages was not um, uh, accomplished. Um, The schedule was very busy starting early in the morning and going to late in the evening. Uh, The San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference uh, not only welcomes the um, uh, professionals that I've mentioned, uh, but also uh, other interested uh, individuals, including patient advocates and patients were um, uh, recognized and represented, it, uh, represented and therefore uh, it encourages patient advocacy patient education, and survivor uh, support. Uh, CME, a continuing medical education, is given for those who need it and a certificate of attendance for anyone who um, desires or needed that. Uh, So therefore, it is very comprehensive. Of the patients uh, with hormone receptor-positive breast cancer, there were some very interesting um, abstracts and uh, papers presented. One of them was presented by um, Dr. Mumnos, who uh, presented the latest information from uh, the NSABP trial on extended uh, femora after patients have been treated for five years. And patients could have received tamoxifen followed by uh, five years of femora or an aromatase inhibitor um, followed by five years of uh, femora. And the idea of this uh, trial was to determine 
if adding five additional years uh, of aromatase inhibitor offered benefit to postmenopausal women diagnosed with hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And the results of this trial showed that the women who received the other five years of therapy had additional benefits, uh, and meaning that the um, distant recurrence or uh, recurrence of breast cancer, or meaning that uh, preventing cancer from coming back in the body, uh, was benefited by um, improvement in event-free survival with the five additional years of uh, Femera. And at the end of his talk, he gave some um, information about what to tell your patients. And um, the important things are uh, improvement in event-free survival, meaning no recurrence of cancer, and the side effects with taking Femara for an additional five years. So this was really important for patients under, because we received the questions all the time. Should it be five years or should it be 10 years? And the results of this study presented in December showed that there is definite benefit uh, in continuing Femara for five years and uh, be careful of the side effects. In another study uh, for um, hormone receptor positive disease, uh, this study showed that adding the medication um, of another medication to the group of patients uh, showed additional benefit, and therefore uh, adding the medication ribocyclib added benefit. So again, another important study showing additional benefit to the addition of this um, uh, drug. And then the next study uh, that was very important uh, was the fact that uh, the Femera uh, reduced the risk of distant recurrence in breast cancer. And the last study that I will report on is the study for uh, prevention of breast cancer, and especially for women with a strong family history of lobular carcinoma in situ or having dense breasts. Uh, and these patients were assigned to the medication Arimidex for five years, and the drug Arimidex showed benefit for prevention of breast cancer in patients. So overall, the uh, San Antonio Convention demonstrated that there was benefit in a number of groups of breast cancer and certainly for the hormone-positive uh, group of patients. So with that, Dr. Messner, I thank you for allowing me the opportunity to give this information. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. That was really outstanding, wonderful, and um and then other questions during the Q&A for, for you as well. So thank you very much. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Generosa Grana. And Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at, at Cooper. Director, Division, um, Head Hematology and Medical Oncology, 
the Cooper Health System, professor of medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And um, Dr. Groner is going to be addressing updates from SABCS on triple negative breast cancer, including metastatic triple negative breast cancer, and the increasing role of diagnostic testing, genomics, genetics, their new guidelines, grade, hormone receptors, and precision medicine in informing treatment choices. It's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Grana. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so in the next uh, period of time, I'm going to go through triple negative breast cancer and really focus on two topics. Uh, additional drugs, are there new drugs that should be considered as part of the armamentarium of this disease um, and the role of immunotherapy, then focus on uh, genomics and genetics. Triple negative breast cancer, as many of you know, is an aggressive diagnosis for which the hormonal agents that Dr. Mitchell spoke about and the HER2 new targeted agents that you're going to hear about later don't add benefit. Yet this disease does respond well to chemotherapy. And the questions are, can we add other drugs to standard chemotherapy regimens such as adriamycin, cytoxin, and taxol, or epirubicin and cytoxin? And where do the new immunotherapy agents fit in? So I'll start with drugs and begin with capsidabine or Zolota, a drug that uh, many of you will have heard about. And there were two presentations at San Antonio that focused on this. One was a review of many prior uh, trials looking at the data of uh, Zolota used in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant, adjuvant or preoperative setting. Uh, and the second was a trial in which uh, taxotere was added to a standard chemotherapy regimen of cytoxin, epirubicin, uh, uh, 5-FU, and taxotere. And without going into specific details, the LODA did prove to be of benefit in the triple negative population as a whole. But what is less than clear is how to use it. So it definitely adds benefit to other systemic treatments that are recommended to women, but many are really using it in the women who, after having received chemotherapy prior to surgery, still have residual disease. And there, uh, we are using it with significant benefit. Whether we can add it to other regimens, uh, such as carboplatinum-containing uh, regimens or other, is still to be determined. So again, I think in the United States, based on the data that was presented, uh, there won't be a significant change in, in how we use it other than likely continuing to use it after neoadjuvant therapy. But again, it's an interesting drug with a lot of future potential. Immunotherapy. The concept of immunotherapy is that we would add novel compounds that have proven very useful in melanoma and other cancers uh, to breast cancer. These drugs have significant toxicity, and toxicity that is quite different from what we're used to dealing with with traditional chemotherapy. Um, so the question with immunotherapy is how should it be used? There's data that there, uh, it will provide benefit in women with metastatic disease. There was data presented on new combinations in metastatic disease, and there was an interesting trial that looked at the concept of maintenance therapy. Can we use these drugs in, in women along with chemotherapy and then stop the chemotherapy and continue the immunotherapy? Uh, again, I think there is some very interesting data. Uh, when given prior to surgery, when given in a preoperative setting, the Keynote 52 trial 
showed that if you give a woman chemotherapy plus immunotherapy, there is an improvement in response rates, what we call pathologic complete response, which is where there is no residual disease in the breast or in the lymph nodes. And we know from prior studies that that is the population of patients that tends to have the best long-term outcome. Uh, this Keynote 5522 study showed that the largest benefit was seen in patients that were stage 3 or node positive, triple negative breast cancers. Uh, so again, an interesting concept that we may be able to add something more to the standard approach of these patients. A separate study called Neotrip, however, showed no significant benefit, and several other trials have showed conflicting results. So I would argue that with regards to immunotherapy, uh, in triple negative breast cancer, many questions still remain that were not settled at San Antonio. The questions remain around what should the chemotherapy backbone be when we're using these drugs? Um, should we use carboplatinum? Should we use uh, paxotere, et cetera? And I don't think we have an ideal uh, regimen yet. Uh, there are differences in tumor features that will predict benefit, and it's yet to be determined what is the best marker to predict response. There was also a difference in the agent's use. Some of these uh, immunotherapies are called PD-1 inhibitors. Others are PD-L1 inhibitors. Um, and really the question is, are these agents interchangeable or will we have specific benefit with one or another? The risk of the long-term toxicity of these agents was also discussed. And I would say that for the moment, uh, immunotherapy is Definitely an option in triple negative breast cancer that's metastatic, but that in the early stage setting prior to surgery or after surgery, the studies are still continuing and we need much more data before we go on that route. But an interesting group of drugs. Now let's talk about precision medicine, and precision medicine is the concept that we can uh, look at the genetic changes in a tumor. Uh, I'm going to talk soon about the genetic changes in the germline or the bloodstream that can predict risk, but these are changes in the tumor that can be used to guide treatment selection. Uh, and typically we gather that information on the genetic changes uh, in a tumor from the original biopsy or rebiopsying someone at the time of diagnosis, but there were two interesting uh, presentations that are looking at other ways of obtaining uh, DNA uh, from tumor that can then be used to both uh, develop uh, targeted therapy as well as predict recurrence. In the first study, the plasma match trial, they actually looked at circulating tumor DNA uh, found by doing a test on a specimen of blood to identify uh, genetic alterations that are present in those cancer cells and then to allow a selection of therapy based on those genetic alterations. So again, this is in its infancy, but there is that possibility that we can look at the blood test as opposed to biopsying a tumor to get enough DNA to identify genetic alterations that can then be used to guide therapy. The second uh, study that I thought was interesting was the concept that that same uh, circulating tumor DNA uh, can be used to predict prognosis in a woman with early-stage breast cancer. So, again, after a woman has had neoadjuvant preoperative chemotherapy, uh, can 
detection of circulating tumor DNA uh, help us identify who is at risk of recurrence in the triple negative setting so that potentially we could intervene earlier and prevent a more full-blown recurrence. Uh, the study is ongoing. In that particular study, they looked at both circulating tumor DNA and circulating tumor cells. And uh, there was some interesting data suggesting that you could identify a group of patients at higher risk of recurrence, and those were the ones that had both uh, circulating tumor cells and circulating tumor DNA. So stay tuned because I think this information will be very helpful as we look at the future ways of following women, both with uh, early stage and advanced disease. And next, let me move on to the whole concept of genetics because that could be a topic that we could spend a lot more time on. But genetics, uh, really in the sense of germline testing, looking at your inherited DNA to determine uh, risk of developing disease, uh, potentially uh, identifying drugs that may be particularly useful for certain types of cancers. So the topics that were covered at San Antonio were very broad. Uh, number one, who should have genetic testing, germline genetic testing for hereditary breast cancer syndromes because that information can help the patient and the family. Um, how do we, as the field broadens and more and more people need genetic testing, how do we disseminate that information to the public uh, when there is a shortage of genetic counselors um, and how do we use that information then to predict risk? for a particular patient and to develop prevention strategies. I'll begin by saying that the guidelines for genetic testing have just been updated in, uh, and have just been published, and they're broader than they've ever been before. Uh, ovarian cancer, uh, pancreas cancer, uh, metastatic or advanced prostate cancer, early stage prostate cancer if it's got aggressive features or if there's a family history or Jewish ancestry. Uh, any of those things are uh, indications for genetic testing. And in the breast cancer arena, anyone who has a higher than 5% probability of developing, uh, of carrying a hereditary abnormality. But the real topic that's been discussed now over several years is the concept of um, do we go beyond our current criteria that are pretty broad but not all-inclusive, and do we test all women who had breast cancer? The uh, Society of Breast Surgeons have suggested that genetic testing be done for all patients, um, and that is something that although the medical community has discussed, the recommendations are not yet there. So the recommendations today are to offer genetic testing when appropriate to identify high-risk individuals who have a likelihood of having mutations. But two other important changes have happened, and one is the concept that we need to go back uh, to patients, reassess their family history, and consider retesting, because in the past we were testing for BRCA1 and BRCA2, and as of 2013 and 2014, we have a whole panel of genes that can be tested for. So the concept of doing what is known as multi-gene panel testing uh, for women now and going back and reoffering that to women is important. Again, why test? 
that the results can help us predict response to therapy, and I'll come back to that in a minute. It can help us decide where MRI screening protocols should be put in place for high-risk women who carry alterations. It can help women decide if prophylactic mastectomy is needed or should be considered. It can help us recommend prophylactic oophorectomy for prevention of ovarian cancer. It can have implications on reproductive decisions for women and selective fertility for women. And obviously, it can have very significant impact on uh, families, as this information will have uh, implications not just for the cancer patient, but for sisters, mothers, brothers, and children. I'll I'll finish by two comments about the concept that genetic testing and that the genetic alterations that we find can help us identify drugs that may be beneficial in a patient, and this gets at the whole area of PARP inhibitor trials. PARP inhibitors are agents that are involved uh, in DNA repair, and we know that certain mutations in breast cancer, BRCA1 and 2 being the typical, uh, have abnormal DNA repair and therefore are more susceptible to the use of PARP inhibitors. So there have been several trials now that have shown a benefit for the use of these compounds. These are oral compounds. Uh, the Olympia trial was updated showing that Olaparib, uh, when compared to chemotherapy of the physician's choice, uh, actually improved time to progression of disease. It also improved the time uh, that the patient was healthy, uh, where deterioration was noted. So really an important beginning, and that is this group of drugs are moving now into the early stage, into the adjuvant setting. In a separate trial, Brocade 3, Velaparib, a different uh, PARP inhibitor, uh, was combined with carboplatinum and taxol versus just carboplatinum and taxol, and again, um, improvement in duration of response. So uh, a lot of excitement about these drugs and how they may be added. I don't think we're quite there yet. Uh, they are approved for metastatic disease, but we're not quite there yet in terms of early-stage breast cancer, uh, but we may have some data based on trials that are ongoing in the near future. And how do we combine these drugs with chemotherapy is yet to be defined. So with that, I'll stop, and we can answer questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Brown. That was outstanding, really, just amazing. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Talani. Dr. Talani is Associate Director, Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers, Director of Clinical Trials, Breast Oncology, Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Talani is going to be addressing updates from SABCS on HER2-positive breast cancer, including metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer, prevention and management of treatment side effects, including long-term effects, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Talani. Oh, thanks so much, Carolyn. I think there's a lot of exciting data that was presented at San Antonio specifically for HER2-positive breast cancer, and I think some of these data are going to have very important implications for our patients um, with, I think, new agents that will be available um, for them, which is really exciting. I think one of the exciting studies that was presented was on an agent called trastuzumab drux-tecan. Uh, this is also known as DS8201A. 
this agent is what we call an antibody drug conjugate. So really it's taking an antibody that is directed against HER2, and so it's trying to target the HER2 receptor on the cancer cell, and it's linked to a chemotherapy agent that is a very potent chemotherapy agent. And so what happens is when this drug is infused, um, it's an IV infusion, it's, that agent is targeted towards the HER2-positive cancer cell and then is able to bind to HER2, get taken into the cancer cell, and release its chemotherapy uh, inside the cell, killing the cell. Um, so it's almost like a guided missile towards um, the HER2-positive uh, cell. So very novel agent, um, and this drug was studied in patients who had a metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer, and these in general were patients who had had several prior therapies for their metastatic disease and had shown a very impressive um, number of patients who had very significant decreases in their tumor measurements. And I think not only did it allow for tumors to shrink in the vast majority of patients, but it also allowed cancer to be controlled for a very impressive amount of time. Um, so on average, uh, cancers were controlled uh, for about 16 months before they were needing to change therapy. Um, so I think these data were really very exciting. Um, there were some side effects that I think we all need to be very cautious of. Um, in general, um, this drug is generally well tolerated. It does have some um, what we call GI side effects, so some patients can have some nausea and diarrhea and um, can lose their hair. But it also has a rare side effect where it can cause inflammatory changes in the lung. And these changes, while rare, there were a few patients, unfortunately, who actually did die from the toxicity. And so this has taken us to be very cautious um, with monitoring patients when uh, they are getting this drug. And I think more work will need to be done to better figure out if there are certain risk factors for developing these inflammatory changes uh, within the lungs, and we'll need to be monitored. Um, this drug was actually just approved by the FDA and so is going to be an agent that we're going to have available for our patients, at least at our institution, where we should have the ability to give it in the next couple of weeks. So we're all very excited about that given the very impressive uh, data. Uh, but I think, again, uh, there needs to be some caution given this rare toxicity uh, for monitoring um, for lung toxicity. Another uh, very exciting agent uh, that was um, presented was a drug called tucatinib. This is an oral agent that is targeted against the HER2 receptor. So it's what we call a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It very potently inhibits HER2. And I think one very nice thing about this oral drug is it doesn't hit a lot of the other parts of HER2 that are sometimes hit with other oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And so the thought is that this agent um, is likely to be less toxic than some of the other oral um, HER2-directed agents. And so this trial, the trial that studied this drug called tucatinib um, looked at patients who had metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer and randomized them to receive a oral chemotherapy drug called capecitabine, as some people also call it Zolota, and this was given in combination with the tucatinib and in combination with the trastuzumab, or also known as Herceptin, 
or patients just got the oral chemo with Herceptin. So I was looking to see if adding ticatinib to chemotherapy and Herceptin would improve outcomes for patients. And I think one very important thing about this trial is they also allowed patients onto the trial who had brain metastases. Um, and I think this is very critical um, for us to better understand how to treat patients who have HER2-positive brain metastases. And the trial did find that adding to catnib to the oral chemo drug and to Herceptin resulted in improvements in the duration that disease was controlled, um, which I think, again, is very striking and was allowing patients to live longer with their disease. So I think, again, this is an agent that um, will be under review with the FDA and so hopefully will be an agent that will become available to patients uh, later this year, we hope. Uh, another uh, very exciting um, agent that was presented is a drug called margituximab. This is a novel antibody that's directed against HER2. So it's really trying to develop, you know, one could think of it as a maybe a more efficient version of Herceptin. And so it is trying to not only you know, target HER2 and turn off that HER2 signal to the cancer cell, but it's also trying to improve the way the immune system can kill these HER2-positive cancer cells. And so the trial was really comparing giving chemotherapy with margituximab or giving chemotherapy with Herceptin and did find that there was a slight advantage to giving the chemotherapy with margituximab over giving the chemotherapy with Herceptin. I will say that the difference was fairly small, and so I think we're going to have to see how these data pan out with longer-term follow-up um, to know if it will be an agent that will be adopted as a potential standard treatment. But I think seeing all these data to me was very exciting because it's showing us that there are lots of new agents that keep being developed to target HER2 that are really improving outcomes for patients, which was, I think, great. And the fact that the um, trastuzumab drexatecan was also just FDA approved is really nice to see. Um, so I think this will have immediate implications for how we're treating patients with metastatic HER2 positive disease, where we now will have the option of using trastuzumab drexatecan, and hopefully in the near future also have the option of giving to catnib, um, which, which I think is, again, very exciting. There were also some other um, studies that were presented looking at um, treatment for um, HER2-positive disease in the adjuvant setting, so meaning after a patient has been diagnosed with a breast cancer, um, looking at improving treatments that are given after breast surgery. Um, one study that um, is an older study but was an updated presentation at San Antonio is a study called the Affinity Trial. This trial was looking to add pertuzumab, so another antibody directed against HER2, to chemotherapy and Herceptin. And we knew from previously presented data that adding pertuzumab could control, could help prevent recurrences of breast cancer, um, which led to the approval of pertuzumab. But now at San Antonio this year, we saw longer follow-up data, um, which was now out to a median of about six years, continuing to show benefit from the addition of pertuzumab to chemotherapy and Herceptin. I think there were some subtle things that um, were interesting from this analysis, and one was that in the previous presentation, it seemed that pertuzumab was really having benefit predominantly for patients who had hormone receptor 
negative HER2 positive disease, whereas now these updated data show that we're also seeing benefit for those patients who have hormone receptor positive HER2 positive disease. So showing that regardless of the hormone receptor status of the breast cancer, that adding pertuzumab did add benefit. So I think it's not changing our practice, but really uh, continuing to affirm what many of us have been doing all along. And there was another trial that was presented that was more specific to stage one HER2-positive disease called the ATTEMPT trial. This was a trial that was really trying to see if giving a drug called TDM1, which is an antibody drug conjugate. So we had talked a little bit about that trastuzumab drugstecan agent, which is also an antibody drug conjugate, which is really taking an antibody and trying to deliver chemotherapy in a targeted way to the cancer cell. The TDM1 drug is also trying to do that. Um, it's a drug that is standardly used for metastatic HER2-positive disease and in some patients um, after completion of breast surgery. Um, but this was specifically looking to see if it had activity for stage 1 HER2-positive patients. And it did show that in this particular trial, a year of TDM1 was given and did show that there were very few recurrences in patients who had received a year of TDM1 with almost 98% of patients not having recurrences with about three years of follow-up. Um, but the study also compared the side effects of TDM1 to a chemotherapy agent, um, paclitaxel, given with trastuzumab, since that's a regimen that many of us give to patients with stage 1 HER2 positive disease, and didn't really see a significant difference in the toxicities when looking at the overall rate of side effects seen between the two different regimens. But there were differences in the types of toxicities that were seen. And we know, for example, that giving paclitaxel and Herceptin results in hair loss, whereas TDM1 for the most part doesn't. We also know that paclitaxel and Herceptin can cause neuropathy, whereas TDM1 has much lower rate of neuropathy. So there were some differences in the types of side effects uh, that were seen. And I think it does suggest that maybe for some patients who have stage 1 HER2 positive breast cancer, considering giving TDM1 may be an option um, for select patients. So I think all of these studies together um, really do show that there are, again, several new agents that are coming into play for HER2-positive disease, which is great. I think it, however, does call into the need for paying attention to the potential toxicities that our agents can cause. And so we sort of highlighted one of the side effects that, that needs to be monitored with trastuzumab drugs tecan, specifically um, the issue with developing some toxicity to the lungs. Um, but certainly a lot of our other agents do cause specific side effects that do need monitoring. Um, but I think we are getting better and better at developing ways to help prevent some of these toxicities from developing. Um, so, for example, when we give Oral agents, sometimes agents like Everolimus, um, also known as Affinitor, that agent can cause some mouth sores. We know to give a steroid mouthwash that can work to prevent that very well. We know now with an oral agent called Alpalisib, a PI3 kinase inhibitor, also called Picray, that giving um, antihistamines can help prevent the rash. Um, so I think we're getting better and better at developing regimens to help prevent a lot of toxicities that can develop. But I think we also, you know, need to watch patients for longer term because some of these side effects, unfortunately, can be permanent and do need to be treated. Um, and so, you know, I think 
For patients, for example, who are on aromatase inhibitors, Dr. Mitchell had talked about the longer-term data for giving potentially longer-duration aromatase inhibitors in the adjuvant setting. We do know that we do need to monitor bone health because those agents can cause thinning of the bones and cause potential osteoporosis, which could lead to fractures. And so monitoring of bone densities is very important in patients who are on aromatase inhibitors and thinking about using agents that can help prevent osteoporosis um, can be important, particularly in those patients who um, have thin bones to begin with. Um, so I think there are lots of um, agents, again, that can be considered in that setting, and that's something certainly to be um, discussed with your oncologists. I think also when thinking about the hormone therapies, we also know these agents can cause menopausal symptoms that can be troubling to patients. And so, again, there are medications that can help to treat some of these side effects. Um, so agents, for example, that may help with hot flashes, agents that may help with the vaginal dryness. Um, and so I think these are things that are very important to discuss with your oncologist because, again, there are ways to deal with a lot of the side effects as they come up um, and, again, um, are important so that we can make sure that we're getting effective therapy for everyone, but also making sure that quality of life is maintained while we're on where we're giving these medications and because again, you know, really the point of all this is to allow our patients to live better and to live longer. Um, and so again, lots of very good things that can be done to help prevent um, some of the side effects from our treatments. Uh, thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Delaney. That was really outstanding and we're just really covering an array of, of topics and, and both in terms of um, her two um, positive breast cancers, but also in terms of the um, management of treatment side effects and long-term effects. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker um, is this Lauren Chatelian. And Ms. Chatelian is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she's our Women's Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And uh, Ms. Chatelian will be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelian. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. Um, as Dr. Mesner mentioned, I am an oncology social worker at Cancer Care as well as Cancer Care's Women's Cancers Program Coordinator. As an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and families impacted by a cancer diagnosis. The Women's Cancers Program aims to be a primary comprehensive source of support, information, and guidance for women facing cancer and their loved ones. In my role, I maintain a clinical concentration in women's cancers and keep current of changing trends and new knowledge that affects the program, as well as the delivery of clinical interventions. Cancer Care is a nonprofit organization that provides free site professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. At Cancer Care, our licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a breast cancer diagnosis can impact an individual, as well as their loved ones and support system. We are aware of the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impacts that breast cancer can have on an individual. Cancer Care provides an array of supportive services, including individual counseling and support groups to those diagnosed with cancer, as well as for loved ones or caregivers. 
Cancer Care short-term cancer-focused services are offered in person in the New York City, New Jersey area, as well as over the telephone nationally. Additional services include online support groups specific to a breast cancer diagnosis, access to additional breast cancer-related educational workshops, reading material, as well as limited financial support. In partnering with the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, Cancer Care also offers specific services to those diagnosed with TMBC. Working one-on-one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. A social worker can offer support and guidance, as well as help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones, among other challenges specific to a diagnosis. This may include adjusting to and finding new ways of coping with this diagnosis and throughout treatment that is tailored to an individual. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you may encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. A support group may help to reduce feelings of loneliness and help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. There are many aspects of a breast cancer diagnosis that may be addressed throughout psychosocial supportive services, making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, communication with one's medical team, and managing treatment side effects are important topics that can be discussed with an oncology social worker. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. Physical, social, and emotional challenges may arise, and it can be beneficial to determine ways in moving forward throughout a breast cancer diagnosis. If you are interested in learning more about the support services Cancer Care offers, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. You can discuss what led you to Cancer Care with one of our social workers and explore the ways in which we can offer support. Our social workers can also provide resources to accessing clinical trials, financial assistance, and potential supports local to you. We look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this very informative program today. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity opportunity to speak today. And I will now turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Chatelian. That was excellent, really outstanding, and wonderful resources that people can access. Some of you already know about these resources, but if you don't, definitely take advantage of them. And so now I'm going to ask um, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take questions from you. Um, some of you have already been posting questions, but I want to give. I want to have Norma explain to all of you how to ask questions, so that you can all have a chance to ask a question. Uh, Norma, thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Thank you so much, Carolyn. As usual, it's an excellent seminar. Thank you so much, speakers. I uh, guess I'm with a stage 2B uh, dub- double. I was ER negative, PR negative, HER2 positive 13 years ago, so I am a survivor with no recurrence. I have two questions. The first question I have 
is about the blood test that you spoke about. I have the CEA and CA2729 I take yearly. I'd like to know more if there's a new, the new testing that they're speaking about to be able to detect reoccurrence or any metastatic breast cancer. Which, of course, you all take, I take the mammography and ultrasound, but those tests are so important. But I do these yearly, and I need to know more about that. And the second one I have to have a question about is the acupuncture safe? My oncologist says it's very safe for the peripheral neuropathy I had from Taxel for two months back, 2007. And I do the acupuncture now, but for the neuropathy, but also for the lymphedema, uh, stage one lymphedema. And she said it was okay. But my question is about needles going into the lymphedema arm. I don't do it. I do the other arm. So how is there clinical studies right now on acupuncture with the peripheral neuropathy and the lymphedema, and, and what is the results of possibly maybe getting it better. Thank you so much. Okay. okay. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie. Um, Dr. Tulaney, could you address those questions? Sure. So one of the questions was um, looking at whether or not testing for circulating tumor DNA uh, may be another thing that we should be looking at in patients um, you know, in the follow-up period to make sure that there are no signs of a recurrence from cancer. I think we're a little bit premature here. While there was very um, exciting data that was presented at San Antonio that was really looking to see can we help predict um, which patients may have residual disease after surgery and how that may um, predict recurrence, I think these tests are still a little bit immature. And, you know, if you look at the data very carefully from the San Antonio presentation, it's not a perfect correlation, and, you know, with outcome. Um, certainly it, it helped predict, but not um, perfectly in all patients. Um, and the tests that are used for this are not um, certainly standard in the monitoring period at this point in time. So my hope is that these tests are going to continue to improve and eventually will be something that we will be able to utilize um, once patients have completed their treatment for breast cancer to see if we have any remaining microscopic cells that could be left behind um, to know if there may be indications to think about other treatments to help kill those remaining cells um, and find, you know, ways to, to cure patients of breast cancer better, but I think we're not quite there yet um, to use it as a monitoring test. And then with regards to the second question with use of acupuncture, you know, there certainly is very nice data that has come out. I think the most robust data for acupuncture in a randomized trial had actually shown that acupuncture can help um, treat arthralgia, so joint aches that result from taking aromatase inhibitor therapy um, when compared to sham acupuncture. So that study was very important impressive um, and I think is something I often discuss with patients to think about for particularly those joint aches. Um, we ha do have other data that has been done looking at acupuncture for neuropathy, um, which I think also is very suggestive of benefit um, and I think is very safe to do. I think the challenge, however, is at this time not universally covered by insurance. Um, and so we do have our patients take their receipts and submit it to insurance and hope for reimbursement, but again, not um, something that's standardly covered at this time. I so agree with you about the circulating markers. Uh, they, they're interesting. It's a promising future uh, approach, but uh, definitely not ready for prime time. And I think for someone like the patient who called in, who's so many years out, really nothing other than mammography, symptoms, and exam 
are required for surveillance, and the likelihood of recurrence in such a patient is so low that I think we're in a good place. Fantastic. And um, we have another telephone question, I believe, Norma. Our next question is from Anne-Marie A. Your line is open. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you for presenting such great information. My question is on neratinib for early-stage SIR2-positive and triple L positive cancers. And I, my question is, um, was there new information reported on how that is working for patients, as well as any new ways of managing side effects, as well as um, liver toxicity, et cetera? Thank you, Emma, for, um, for that question. Um, and Dr. Blaney, could you address that as well? Sure. Um, so um, there was a trial called the Extinet trial, and that sounds like you're very familiar with, uh, in which patients who had completed their standard chemotherapy with um, trastuzumab were then randomized to get a year of neratinib or placebo, really trying to say, can we give extra HER2-directed therapy after completing um, the standard course of treatment and improve outcomes and help prevent recurrence? And as um, you had suggested that, you know, we do have data from this trial that did show that giving the extra um, year of neurotinib did help prevent recurrences. I think, you know, we have had further analyses that were done since the initial presentation, and which continue to show that there is benefit um, from neratinib. Um, and, you know, most of the benefits seem to be in those patients who had hormone receptor positive and HER2 positive cancer, where we saw significant reductions in, in recurrences. Um, one challenge, I think, is that these data were done at a time when patients weren't getting pertuzumab, and, and so we don't really know what the benefits of neratinib are in patients who previously had pertuzumab, and it was also at a time when TDM1 wasn't being given uh, to patients who had residual disease after preoperative therapy. So we also don't know what the benefits of neratinib are for patients who've had prior TDM1. So I think currently you know, utilization of neratinib is a little unclear in what to do in patients who've had the agents that we're currently giving. But I think with regards to your second question of how can we better manage side effects, there actually has been a lot of work now done trying to come up with optimal ways to manage one of the main toxicities of neratinib, which is diarrhea. And so um, there was a trial done called the control trial where they looked at different anti-diarrheal medications to be given to prevent the diarrhea and with neratinib, looking at agents like using Imodium or using a drug called budesonide, and another arm looked at cholestopol, and then a Another arm, which I think is actually very interesting, looked at dose escalating the neurotinib. So starting at a lower dose when people start the medicine and then going up on the dose as people accommodate to the medication. And so I think what we're basically seeing from all these different strategies is that they really do help to control the diarrhea. I think either I honestly will traditionally use um, either budesonide or cholestopol in combination with loperamide. But I do find that patients don't really need to be on these medications long term, that the diarrhea improves with time, and so you end up weaning patients off of these medications with time. Uh, but I do think that dose escalation approach seems to, at least with the early data, look like a very promising approach, and so we'll have to see how, um, you know, as they have more complete data, how that approach looks and whether or not that will be the best way to help patients um, with the diarrhea. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and our next question, Norma. 
Our next question is from Lynn F. Your line is open. Hi, great program. I was really happy to hear that you discussed the potential side effects of the long-term use of the aromatase inhibitors. And within our breast cancer community here in San Diego, a lot of doctors are recommending the use of either Zometa or Prolia, and not just for bone protection, but also perhaps for reduction in recurrence. So my question is, are Zometa and Prolia equal in the potential of reducing recurrence and also equal in terms of improvement of the overall bone density profile of the patient? Thank you. Excellent question. Dr. Mitchell, do you want to address that question? Sure. So these medications can help prevent bone loss um, caused by chemotherapy as well as uh, many of the hormone-related uh, drugs also, uh, including uh, the aromatase inhibitors uh, such as Femara or um, uh, Arex, So um, they do have, they have shown some benefit in helping protect against uh, recurrence as well as uh, during treatment. Uh, they are not given, however, to treat the cancer, but help prevent the um, loss of bone density and loss of calcium from the bone. So, uh, yes, we do use them. Um, both have been shown to have some benefit, uh, but the greatest benefit is the pre- uh, prevention uh, of bone loss or the treatment of bone loss to help prevent uh, fractures. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, and our next question, Norma. Our next question comes from Alexandra R. Your line is open. Hi, I'm thinking about um, invasive lobular carcinoma and its um, different metastatic spread and tendency to occur later reportedly, and I'm wondering if there are any findings specific to invasive lobular at the conference. Thank you for that question. Dr. Grana, are you able to? I don't know that I saw anything particularly about this, but others may have looked at abstracts that I didn't see. I think we do know that invasive lobular has a similar risk of recurrence, although the pattern, the sites of recurrence are different. Uh, It tends to be uh, usually uh, low oncotype, high estrogen progesterone, high hormone dependency. So these are often patients that are not treated with chemotherapy or treated with hormone therapy. But again, they do have a slightly different predilection for sites of recurrence with unusual presentations. But I'm not aware of anything particularly different that was uh, presented. Does anyone else want to comment on that? or? And we have, I think, one last question, Norma. Thank you. Our next question comes from Janice A. Your line is open. Um, Hi. Um, Thank you very much for this conference. Um, I have a question about the presentation um, about the NSABP extended femera that showed benefit beyond uh, for additional five years, which is a little bit different from the prior presentations where they suggested there was no benefit from extending hormonal therapy. 
And I was wondering whether this particular study looked at sub subgroups of patients based on such things as uh, stage, tumor size, uh, oncotype DX, or positive nodes to uh, or PR negative patients to see where the benefit was greater in specific high-risk groups rather than in low-stage groups. Thank you. That's, you know, these are wonderful questions. I have to say this is an extraordinary audience today with our wonderful speakers. Um, so, Dr. Mitchell, do you want to address that? Um, um, yes. So since this was um, an abstract presentation, it didn't give all of the details uh, that you have requested, but that information will be uh, reported later. Uh, so the criteria for the study uh, were um, aromatase inhibitor benefits in postmenopausal women diagnosed with early-stage hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. Uh, so this report given in December did not give all of the details of the subgroups. It gave the details and the outcomes of the main group, and that was whether uh, the addition of five uh, additional years of uh, Femara uh, reduced the risk of disease recurrence, and that was the purpose of this um, um, presentation. So we'll look forward to next year, or this year, 2020, which will be the 43rd San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference, and perhaps we will have that information from the NSABP by then. So more to come next year. Well, that's a great way to – I know there are many more questions in here, but it's a great way to kind of conclude the call. This is, there is more to come, um, and clearly um, I want to thank our speakers for being so phenomenal, and I want to thank our participants for being so phenomenal. You really asked great questions, actually. Very, I have to say, very informed group of questions, I have to say. And, um, and obviously some of your questions, we, there's still more to come, as what Dr. Mitchell said. Um, I also want to, in wrapping this up, I know some of you still have questions um, and some of you asked questions. Either way, um, we do want you to take any information you learned on today's program and go back to your treating healthcare team because, because they know you the best. They know all the details of your care, um, all the nuances, and to some extent they're a very good resource to take anything you've learned today or take back today, bring it to them. We also know that many of you like to go to credible sites to get additional information um, before you speak to your physician sometimes or after you speak to them or just in general as you're checking things out. So we do, um, we will at the end of today's call, well actually it will probably be tomorrow, you will receive an evaluation. But the evaluation isn't just an evaluation. It also includes all the resources that are mentioned during this call. And so in that evaluation um, there will be um, all the resources that were brought up today. And um, so there's a lot of breast cancer organizations um, that participate in today's program that have information. They have lots of information on their sites for you. Um, they're also, um, we also often give information about the National Cancer Institute as a wonderful resource to go to. And for all of you both in the U.S. and internationally, they have a live chat feature that you can actually go to their website and you can click on that and ask your question and they'll give you information that you can then take back to your healthcare team. Um, and so that um, so there's a lot of resources out there that you can get. 
Um, I also do want to mention to all of you that we are doing another program on breast cancer, so more to come from our end, is what's new in the treatment of breast cancer for women of all ages on Wednesday, January 29th from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So we welcome you to participate in that program as well because I know some of you still have questions and you'll be able to ask them again at that meeting as well. Um, again, I do want to thank you all for your participation today. And in concluding, we don't want any one of you to leave this call feeling that you're alone. And for those of you who wish to follow up with contacting Cancer Care for just any um, personal or emotional or, or practical questions that you may have, um, please do. There were some questions we weren't able to take on the financial toxicity issue of the costs of medical care, and we do help with those financial costs. And not, we're not the only organization that does that. And so our staff can talk to you about getting financial assistance for any medications, as can your healthcare team. So your healthcare team consists not only of your physician, but all of the other people on that team, patient navigators, nurses, social workers, who actually could help with getting you that assistance as well. So just to be aware of that. Um, so, um, so again, um, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And at the end of, by tomorrow, you'll have lots of resources to call um, for those moments when you really have someone, have a need to talk to someone. Again, thank you all, and I wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This does conclude the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.